I volunteered to preach on this passage, um, and within a few weeks of volunteering, I really was wondering why I decided to do that. Um, but I, I told Chris that I was really trying to understand the concepts, and so really, I did this for myself. Um, it was something that I felt like God was trying to show me and that I was trying to wrap my head and heart around. And there's nothing like a sermon deadline to force you to do that. So um, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that when you came up to the front doors this morning, if that's the way you came in, that there was a man sitting there on those lovely benches who's wearing an orange jumpsuit. So he's wearing the clothing of a person that's been designated as a criminal. Or if you spend time at campus, um, at Duke, imagine that you see someone in an orange jumpsuit walking across the quad, casually strolling past you. Uh, probably all of us shop at the Food Lion. It's just across the street. So maybe uh, if you don't go to Duke, maybe you go to Food Lion. Maybe think about um, if you saw him hanging out at the entrance on your way in. So imagine how you would feel. Are you feeling nervous, uh, unsafe? Scared? How would you feel? When you pictured the person in the orange jumpsuit, did you picture a person of a certain race? Because our culture really tells us that certain types of people are more criminal than other types of people. Well, I had the experience of having this happen to me when I went to a panel talk at the Nasher Art Museum. And I went into the panel talk. I thought, we're going to talk about art today. And there was a person on the stage that was wearing an orange jumpsuit. And I was so confused, and honestly, I was pretty uncomfortable until I heard what the story was. So this story is of a man named uh, Cheryl Rowland. And Cheryl Rowland was a Master's of Fine Arts student at UNC Greensboro. And that's his picture right there. And when he was starting his degree, he was falsely accused and incarcerated for crimes that he didn't do. He was wrongly convicted. And he spent 10 months in prison in Washington, D.C. And when he got out of that experience, um, he tried to go back to school, and it was really hard for him to go back to life as usual. And so eventually, he decided to use his experience and leverage it for his master's in fine arts degree, and he did it for his thesis project. And so what he did is he went out and he bought himself an orange jumpsuit, and he started wearing it around UNC Greensboro's campus. And he got all kinds of reactions. He had people that, you know, stared, he had people that steered clear, he had people that ran to get out of there. He literally saw people running away from him. And he also had people that talked to him and he had conversations with them. And he brought awareness of what had happened to him and awareness of the problems with our criminal justice system and how they particularly have effects when it comes to race. Um, and he was able to use his experience to bring that awareness to other people. So Cheryl Rowland, um, oh, as an aside, if you haven't seen the 13th documentary, we watched it here a couple of years ago. I think you can find it for free, and it really helps to explain what's going on, and even to kind of explain the context of how this would happen to someone like Cheryl Rowland, who is um, not even guilty. So Cheryl Rowland is a performance artist, and he's one of my favorites, but there's a few other performance artists that I think you all will be familiar with. Uh, so you can, we can take down the picture. Actually, I have a clicker, but I forgot. Okay, thanks, Matt. Um, so one of these performance artists lived in Jerusalem a few thousand years ago, and he wore a yoke around his neck. 
And then he walked through the streets of Jerusalem to show people that God was going to, um, that they were going to be led away into captivity. And the religious leaders of that day got the message, and they didn't like it, and they tore that yoke off and they broke it. Well, that performance artist is the prophet Jeremiah. Um, another one was a man who laid on one side for 390 days, and he flipped over and laid on the other side for 40 days. And he did this to symbolize how Israel had turned its back on God for many years. That guy was the prophet Ezekiel. He did a lot of other crazy stuff, too. He was a, quite the performance artist. Another man, um, a third biblical performance artist, um, went stripped and barefoot for three years. And he did it as a sign of comfort and hope. I don't know. Um, but he did it to symbolize that one day Israel's captors and oppressors would be led away, stripped and barefoot, and that Israel would be free again. And that was the prophet Isaiah. So I just told you about four performance artists who are also prophets. Cheryl Rowland, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. And in a moment, Christian's going to come up and read from the prophet Micah for us. Um, but first, I want to tell you a few things that I learned about prophets when I was conveniently scheduled to be in godly play with the Oak Kids last week. And what do you know, our lesson was about prophets. So what we learned in godly play is that prophets were people who came so close to God and God came so close to them that they knew what God wanted them to say and do. Sometimes they spoke in oracles. Sometimes they told stories. I think of Nathan, who challenged David by telling him a story about a rich man that stole a poor man's sheep. And sometimes they acted things out. Sometimes they were putting on display as performance artists what God wanted the people of Israel to be able to see. So we'll come back to Cheryl Rowland and the Jumpsuit Project um, a little bit later. But now I want to ask Christian to come up and read today's scripture for us. Micah 6, 1 through 8. The Lord said to his people, Come and present your case to the hills and mountains. Israel, I am bringing charges against you. I will call upon the mountains and the earth's firm foundation to be my witnesses. My people, I have I wronged you in any way at all? Please tell me. I rescued you from Egypt, where you were slaves. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to be your leaders. Don't forget the evil plans of King Balak of Moab, or what Balaam or the son of Beor said to him. Remember how I, the Lord, saved you many times on your way to Achaia and Gigal. What offering should I bring when I bow down to worship? The Lord the Most High. Should I try to please him by sacrificing calves a year old? Will thousands of sheep or rivers of olive oil make God satisfied with me? Should I sacrifice to the Lord my firstborn child as a payment for my terrible sins? The Lord has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. This is the word of the Lord. So what does God desire from us? So you want thousands of rams, tons of olive oil, thousands of dollars, tons of diamonds, a firstborn child maybe? What would be enough 
to satisfy God? What would be sufficient, a sufficient offering for him? Well, God says he doesn't want sacrifices because the Lord has shown us what is good, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Now, this idea of God not wanting our sacrifices is not unique to Micah. Amos and Isaiah both preached about God detesting sacrifices and worship festivals um, from Israel because he saw them as acts of false worship. And they become acts of false worship when they are not accompanied by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. So what does the Bible mean when it talks about justice and mercy? This is the part where I've really needed to have my mind changed and to be transformed, and God's been doing that work in me for about the last three years. In American culture, we often think of justice very punitively, and we think of retributive justice. Um, we're, kind of, uh, we're kind of really given into that kind of narrative of justice. Uh, you, so the idea would be you did a crime, so you need to pay for it, tit for tat, a life for a life, a way to make things even. So as a nation, we've really embraced retributive justice, and it even shows up in our theology. When the prophets talk about justice in the Old Testament, that's not usually what's being talked about. Justice in the Bible is a solution to poverty and oppression, not just material poverty, but every kind of poverty. Justice in the Bible is the empowerment of the vulnerable and people who have been disempowered. And justice in the Bible is living together in a way that everyone has what they need to flourish. So biblical justice is inseparable from the concept of shalom, which is the biblical idea of peace. It describes a true and deep peace that's based on harmony and wholeness, harmony of people with God and with each other and with the creation. Without justice, we cannot have this kind of peace. So you might have seen um, this slide. It's not working. No justice, no peace. When I've seen this um, as a sign held by protesters, I initially thought it sounded kind of threatening. Um, it sounds like an ultimatum. No justice, no peace. And it might very well be intended that way sometimes, and I think that's okay. But now, I just see it as the way that things work. It's just a fact that if we don't have true justice, we're not going to have that deep, true peace of shalom. They're inseparable from each other. And it's the way that things, it's about the way that things ought to be. So because we think of justice as punishment, we also have a habit of thinking of mercy as merely avoiding punishment. So not being given a punishment that we deserve. I used to hear the saying a lot that grace is getting something that you don't deserve and mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. And that kind of thinking is limiting mercy to only being forgiveness and pardon. And of course, forgiveness is an important aspect of mercy. But mercy is so much more than that. It's far too narrow of a view of mercy to think of it as only that. And it also makes mercy and justice into opposites of each other. But mercy and justice are two sides of the same coin. In the Bible, justice and mercy are inseparable and they go hand in hand. So maybe when the verse says to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, it's really three ways of elaborating on the same idea. And honestly, if that's the only thing you take home today, I think I'd be okay with that. Just remember that justice and mercy are two sides of the same coin. 
So I have like at least five things to say about mercy. I probably could come up with a lot more, but I thought that would be ridiculous to make more than five points about anything. So we're gonna um, keep the points on the slide um, so, that, so that we can all stay on track with each other, especially me. Um, so the first one is that mercy is alleviating suffering and it doesn't matter whether someone deserves their suffering. That's totally irrelevant for us as mercy givers. What matters is what we can do to alleviate it. And then number two, mercy can look like charity. That is an aspect of mercy. So charity, where we give generously with someone who has an immediate need, where we bring aid to someone who is sick, and when we give food to someone who is hungry. But charity alone is a limited view of mercy as well. So I think that Dorothy Day says it really well in this quote. Dorothy Day says, whatever I had read as a child about the saints had thrilled me. I could see the nobility of giving one's life for the sick, the maimed, the leper. But there was another question in my mind. Why was so much done in remedying the evil instead of avoiding it in the first place? Where were the saints to try to change the social order, not to minister to the slaves, but to do away with slavery? Now we might say, where are the Christians trying to change the criminal justice system? Not just to minister to prisoners, which is a very good thing, but to also do away with mass incarceration and systemic racism. So you see, justice and mercy are not only dealing with an immediate short-term need. They are also about addressing the structures that created the need in the first place and thinking about the long-term impact and how we can change those things. It's about getting to the root of the problem. So that brings us to point number three. So mercy is about restructuring sinful systems that we've built so that we are in right relationship to each other. Loving mercy means working to change the system and structure in our communities to prevent suffering from happening in the first place as much as is possible, in every way possible. Because we lived, because, oh, so point number four, because we live in an unjust world, mercy is also about preventing people from getting things that they don't deserve at times, which is getting them justice. So an example of this comes from a story, a story that has similarities to Cheryl Rowland's story. And so that's the story of um, Brian Stevenson and Anthony Ray Hinton, and I learned about it from this book, Just Mercy. So Brian Stevenson is a lawyer and an activist, and he's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. He's the guy in the background on the left. Um, he fights to get people who are wrongly convicted off of death row and out of prison, and to get minors and people with disabilities more mercy in our criminal justice system, so that minors aren't tried as adults, and so that people with disabilities are shown more compassion and protected from abuse. So one of his clients was Anthony Ray Hinton, and that's the man on the right in the foreground. And Anthony Ray Hinton was wrongly convicted and sat on death row for 30 years. Before I read this book, I don't think I realized that death row is a real physical place. I think I thought it was kind of like a metaphorical thing where it's like a list of people that are going to be executed one day. But it is a real place. And he spent 30 years in a jail cell that's about the size of your bathroom and doesn't look, I mean, it doesn't look as nice as your bathroom, but it's not that, not that much different. Um, and I don't, I don't know. Anthony Ray Hinton, 
I, th I think we can say that he honestly did not deserve to be on death row, right? He didn't do those crimes. He wasn't supposed to be there. So when Brian Stevenson was working for his freedom, he was working towards both justice and mercy. It was justice because he didn't commit those crimes, and it was mercy because he was bringing the end of his suffering. He was alleviating that suffering. So two sides of the same coin. I can't recommend the book enough. Um, I also recommend watching Anthony Ray Hinton's talk on YouTube. He is so powerful in how he shares his story. Definitely have a box of tissues handy if you're soft-hearted, uh, but it's just really powerful. So as a brief aside, when I'm gonna get a little soapboxy for a second. When I first moved to Durham in 2007, I read a newspaper article about a very similar story where a North Carolina man had been released from prison, he had been wrongly convicted, and his release finally came based on DNA evidence. Um, some of you know that I'm trained as a scientist and specifically in biology, and as a biologist, it's infuriating to me that there are people on death row, there are people that have been executed in our country without performing the appropriate DNA test to confirm or deny whether they did a crime. And these are men that were asserting their own innocence. I just think there is no excuse for that. A DNA test is so easy to do, so easy. So my last point is number five. My last point about mercy, not my last point for the sermon. Mercy is not giving people what we don't deserve to give them. This is actually Brian Stevenson's main argument against the death penalty. And instead of asking whether someone deserves to die for their crime, he says we should ask whether we have the right to kill them. And there are plenty of reasons to question the death penalty, plenty of theological reasons. Um, one of them is that we live in a world where we as humans are very flawed, and we make mistakes, and we have systemic racism. I think we're too flawed to be carrying out the death of someone else. One in nine people on death row are found to be innocent. That's an incredibly high error rate, but I think one in a million people would be too high of an error rate. And because of our persistent sins of racism and injustice to the poor, people who are black and poor are most at risk. Brian Stevenson says that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. I think we see that in the scripture too. When, in the, when the prophets are preaching um, that, the, that Israel has not been treating the widows and orphans appropriately, often what he's looking for is not alms for the widows and orphans, although those are good. What he's looking for is justice for the widows and orphans. So I've been told for most of my life not to talk, that you know, politics shouldn't be talked about in the pulpit. So I'll just stand over here and talk. No, not really. Um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at scripture. So let's look at Matthew. Let's start with um, John 8. In John 8, at the very beginning of the chapter, religious leaders bring a woman before Jesus who they have accused of adultery. What does Jesus say to them? How does he argue for mercy towards this woman? Well, I'm not sure why Jesus got down and wrote in the dirt. Maybe that was Jesus' performance art. I don't know. Um, but he did lower himself in that action. But then he, what did he ask of the religious leaders? Did he ask them to show the woman's guilt? Did he ask them for evidence and whether... She deserves to be stoned? No, he doesn't ask about any of that. Instead of that, he challenges them on whether they deserve to stone her. He who is without sin can cast the first stone. And Brian Stevenson says that we need people to become stone catchers because right now stones are being thrown at people.
So mercy is not giving people what we don't deserve to give them, and it's actually the only reasonable response for people who are themselves in need of mercy. It was the only reasonable response for religious leaders that day. And in Matthew 18, 21 to 35, we have the story of the unmerciful lender. So it's the story of a person who's in debt and they're forgiven of their debt, but then they turn around and they don't forgive the debt of someone else. It's exactly the opposite of what the Lord's Prayer says. It will forgive those. Forgive our debtors as he forgived us. So mercy requires us to acknowledge our own sin and the sinful systems that we participate in. What are some of those sinful systems? Uh, three come to mind for me. Other ones might be put on your heart by God in the coming days or already there in the coming months. Be listening for that. So we've already talked about mass incarceration and the injustice of our criminal justice system. I also think of immigration and the unmerciful ways that we treat people who weren't born within the borders of our country. I think about housing injustice. And Micah was actually written during a time of housing injustice. And it resulted from significant economic changes that were happening. And I could totally geek out about it, but Chris told me I have two hours of sermon material, so we can talk about it at Potluck if you want to. But in Durham, we're also experiencing significant economic changes. And housing injustice is one of the fallouts of that. So we talk a lot about gentrification and a lack of affordable housing. And I am sure that everyone in this room, including me, has either been affected by that or has participated in it, whether you want to or not. It's just the way that things are right now. Finally, our country was born in a context of white supremacy and that underlays all of these systems of injustice. And all of us can participate in white supremacy, whether we are white or not. And I know that's not a comfortable thing for any of us. We need God's healing. So we can't walk away from this passage without asking what does it mean to walk humbly with God? And what does walking humbly with God have to do with loving justice and mercy? Doing justice and loving mercy. There's definitely humility in recognizing our need for mercy. And we can take it down. Thank you. And to enact justice and mercy, we will have to pour ourselves out and humble ourselves as Christ did for us. Jesus humbled himself to come near to us. He poured out the power and privilege of being God to set us free and to empower us to live into everything that God intends for us. He came to loosen the chains of oppression, whether we are oppressors or oppressed. And some of us fall into both. In turn, as we draw to, near to others in loving mercy, we have to humble ourselves to share our power and to empower others so that they can be free as well. Cheryl Rowland, the Jumpsuit Project guy, and Anthony Ray Hinton, the man that was on death row for 30 years, they both provide Christ-like examples for us. They both have chosen to forgive those who accused them and landed them in prison. So they are merciful towards their accusers and towards the people that threatened their lives in the first place. But that doesn't mean that they swept everything underneath the rug. Anthony Ray Hinton gives a very clear talk and explanation of what forgiveness is and about how forgiveness is for the person that was wronged. It's for his healing. But forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. In Cheryl Rowland's case, he shows mercy towards those, in fact, he shows mercy towards the people who accused him as well, 
but he also is showing mercy towards people that are affected by mass incarceration on just policing and wrongful convictions. So he humbles himself when he puts that jumpsuit back on because when he was set free, he was told he could walk away and forget that the whole thing ever happened. He could hold his head high and not be associated any longer with the stigma, the fear, the scorn that comes with being seen as a criminal, with taking on that orange jumpsuit. But he decided not to do that. He couldn't do it. So by drawing attention to the issue through his prophetic actions and performance art, he is calling us to do justice and to love mercy as he seeks justice and mercy for those who are still in the system, two sides of the same coin at the same time. And in the case of Anthony Ray Hinton, he's not wearing an orange jumpsuit, but he's also openly sharing his story. He's forgiven those who wrongly convicted him, and he's not hiding his past. He's openly sharing about the mental, emotional, and physical trauma that he experienced, those scars that were given to him through 30 years on death row. He's making things that are often unseen, seen. And he's also calling us to do justice and love mercy as one and the same thing. So both of these men show us Jesus and what they're doing. After Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he didn't hide his scars from us. He wore them as prophetic reminders of how he was bringing justice and mercy to earth and setting captives free. Cheryl Rowland and Anthony Ray Hinton sharing their stories the way that they are is their way of doing that. They're bearing their scars as Jesus bore his scars in his glorified body. Some of us also have scars to bear. And when we do the courageous and vulnerable work of sharing our stories with others, we can become catalysts in the healing that God wants for us and for others and for our culture. So in godly play, at the end of each lesson, we have a time of wondering questions. And the, story says, or the storyteller says things like, I wonder where you see yourself in this story. Last week, we wondered if there was a part of the story that the prophets could of the prophets that we could leave out. And Titus suggested that we could leave out the prophets' words. And I was a little taken aback. I was like, yeah, a lot of people would have liked to have not heard the prophets' words, especially the kings and the priests, but even some of the people. So maybe some of us would rather not hear the words from the prophets, the prophets of old or the prophets of today, the performance artists, the people who embody God so much that even silencing them might not shut up their words or their message. So let's spend a few minutes wondering this morning. I wonder if there's anything that you heard today that God is trying to say to you. I wonder if there's anything you heard today that left you feeling unsettled. In godly play, we also learned that prophets can be all kinds of people. They can be rich or poor, young or old, man or woman, sad or hopeful. They are artists and advocates, storytellers and activists. They speak to people with power, kings and priests, presidents and pastors, and people like some of us. So I wonder who the prophets are of today who we should be listening to. And I wonder if God is asking you to speak prophetically into situations of injustice. And my last wondering question, I wonder how Oak Church will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God in Durham. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the words of Micah the prophet. We thank you for the actions of Cheryl Rowland and Anthony Ray Hinton and the work of Brian Stevenson. We pray that we will become vessels of your mercy and agents of justice. We pray that we will work towards shalom 
towards making Durham more, as it is, more on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that our eyes will be open and our ears will be able to hear what you have for us and that we'll come so close to you, you'll come so close to us that we know what you want us to do and say. In your name, amen.